Matthew chapter 8, and then also if you would look over to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 9, where we'll have further reading in Luke's Gospel chapter 9, but beginning in Matthew chapter 8 tonight and verse 18, Matthew chapter 8 and verse 18. And it says this, Now when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave commandment to depart unto the other side. And a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where or nowhere to lay his head. And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer or allow me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their dead. Then in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9 and verse 61, we continue along this vein. It says, Another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plough, and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word. You know, the world is full of wannabes. People who want to be something different from who they are right now. People who want their lives to be very different from the life they're living presently. And as a consequence, many of those people pursue celebrity. They want to be celebrities. They want to be famous. They want to be admired by the world at large. And that's why programs like Britain's Got Talent and The X Factor and so on are so popular. Because many people watch those shows and they also want to be. They want to be something other than they are. And so often these wannabes are aspiring pop stars and musicians and artists of various kinds. But also there are some people who just want to be famous. And they want to be famous just for being famous. Well, in our message tonight, we encounter three men, three wannabe Christians who came apparently surrendering to the Lord Jesus, but who were met with discouraging words and hard sayings. The Lord Jesus, we know now, has completed at this point his Sermon on the Mount. He has descended into the valley beneath, heading toward the town of Capernaum. En route, he encounters a leper whom he heals. Then he is met by the representatives of the centurion, and he heals uh, his, uh, his uh, servant. And uh, he's proceeding into the town of Capernaum. And once he comes into the town of Capernaum, he heals Peter's mother-in-law who is sick with a fever and many other people beside are healed in that town. Let's pick up here in verse 14 of Matthew chapter 8 and we'll see that. And when Jesus was coming to Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laid and sick of a fever. And he touched her hand and the fever left her. She arose and ministered unto him. 
When the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word, and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. So you get this picture in your mind that the Lord Jesus was something of a natural attraction. You know, there's an old saying that a crowd draws a crowd, and I believe that is true in practice, because very often, and you've probably seen this, you know, maybe you've been going through town sometime, and you see a little gathering of people around something or other, and what's your instinct? Well, what's going on here? And uh, you might get in there, and maybe there's a street performer, and you're thinking, well, what's he going to do? And the crowd builds and builds and builds. And some people are there to see the street performer and other people are just there because they want to be part of the crowd and belong to that number. And so it was with Jesus. He could find no rest anywhere he went and he was surrounded by all of these people. But unlike modern celebrities, the Lord Jesus didn't crave such attention. He was very much less interested in that. Notice in verse 18, when he saw the great multitudes about him, he gave commandment to depart unto the other side. So what he did here was he took a, a really significant decision. He looked at this crowd, and, and the idea is he looked at them along with a, with a long, re, a long reflection, and he considered what he wanted to do, and he decided that he should go across the sea from Capernaum, right across to the eastern side of Galilee, to the region of Gadara. And Gadara was a region that was populated uh, to a great degree by Gentiles. So Jews very often didn't even go to Gadara. But uh, the Lord Jesus said that's where he was going to go. He instructs his disciples to depart onto the other side. And this was a master stroke. Why? Because it would test the mettle of his followers. Would they actually follow him wherever he was going to go? Even if he went to the other side, even if he went into the region of Gadara, into Decapolis, would they come and follow after him there? They must determine now whether they're going to truly follow the Savior. So he gives this command to depart to the other side. And whilst they are readying the craft to sail, the Lord conducts three conversations with three different men. Every one of these men is a wannabe Christian. Every one of them infers or states that he's going to follow the Lord wherever he goes. But in the end, not one of these men become a Christian. Do you want to be a Christian? Do you want your life to be changed? Do you want your destiny to be altered? Do you want to know the Lord as your Savior? Do you really want to follow the Lord Jesus? Well, we should pay attention to this text tonight. Because here are three men who each stumbled in their own way. And the first man we encounter in verses 19 and 20, he was stumbled by expectation. Notice him in verses 19 and 20 of Matthew 8. A certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Now it's interesting that we're introduced to this man 
by means of his occupation. He was a scribe. What does that mean? Well, it means he was a Bible teacher, that he was a scholar, and likely he was a Pharisee. Now, not all Pharisees were scribes, but pretty much all scribes were Pharisees. And so he no doubt was among that group of people who had gathered on the mount and listened as the Lord Jesus taught his famous sermon and was impressed with what he heard. And uh, he was especially impressed, no doubt, when he followed the Lord down the mountain and saw him healing the leper and then healing the nobleman's son and then hearing of him healing uh, perhaps uh, Peter's mother-in-law and knowing that others were healed and, and dispossessed of spirits and so on. And so he's very impressed with all of this. He's figuring to himself, well, if anybody has a claim to be the Messiah, surely this fellow must be the Messiah. And so he thought that he would throw in his lot with the Lord Jesus. He said, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. He said, Lord, I'm right behind you all the way. In other words, he wanted to actually join them in the boat and go to Galilee. They're preparing a boat to leave. He says, I'll get in the boat. I'll come with you. Now that boat at that precise moment in time contained the whole kingdom of God. You see, when you think about it, this was in the very early stages of Jesus' ministry. And the only people who are going to get in that boat are Jesus and his disciples. So here this whole boat really is, is, is gathering within it the, the greater number of the kingdom of God. And so when this man came and he asked to join them and to go with them, he was really committing himself to discipleship. He was saying, Lord, I want to follow you. Now that's interesting. Because when you look at it, here is a man who is a, in his own right a scholar, a, a Bible scholar, an Old Testament scholar, a rabbi, a man who taught other people, a man of learning, a man of letters. Why in the world would he want to now identify with this rabbi from Galilee of all places? Why would he want to be sitting at his feet, as it were, rather than being a teacher of the law in his own right? But, you know, if you think about it, if a fellow like that came into the churches today, if he came to our church and other churches like ours, and a fellow came in and he said, you know, I'm a, I'm a Bible scholar, I've, I've uh, got a degree, and I've studied theology, and I've studied the Bible, and, you know, I teach other people, and, you know, we might well roll out the red carpet for him and say, well, come on in, brother, and, and join us, and why don't you take the midweek meeting, or why don't you take one of the services during the week? Why don't you teach? Why don't you use your ability? and your gift for our good. But you know what? Here's the thing. The Lord Jesus didn't do that. The Lord Jesus is as unmoved by status as he is by crowds. He's not impressed by our credentials. He's not moved by our degrees. He's not overawed by our learning. He's not taken in by our own sense of personal importance. He's unmoved by this man because he sees all the way to his heart. You see, this fellow looked at Jesus, and this is what I think happened here. He looked at the Lord Jesus, and he looked at his disciples, and you know, Jesus' disciples weren't anything much, were they? I mean, they weren't scholars. They weren't the Jerusalem elite. They were a bunch of fishermen, largely. 
uneducated uh, largely in, in respect to the scriptures and, and really, you know, they, they weren't worthy of, of as good a master as the Lord Jesus, as good a master as him. And so this man looks at this situation. He sees the Lord, he sees his followers, he weighs it up and he says to himself, you know what, if this guy's the Messiah, I can get in on the ground floor here. And I can come in with this group and I can be somebody when the kingdom materializes. If he could be the sidekick to Jesus, just as the kingdom is being established, well, he's going to be best placed to enjoy some of the benefits of the kingdom that lay ahead. You see, even as you listen to what he says, there's an air of self-importance about it. He says, you know, I, I will follow you whithersoever you go. I'll be on your side. You see, his commitment has a, has a measure of self-approval about it. And that these were his motives become pretty clear when you get to verse 20 and you look at Jesus' response. Jesus said unto him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. He was looking to follow the Lord Jesus straight into the kingdom, and he was looking to have a share in his reign. But Jesus wanted him to understand that if he was following him, it was not instantly leading to earthly glory, uh, but it was rather leading to earthly suffering. You know, that the kingdom he was offering was not some golden ticketed Wonka bar prize awaiting his disciples, but it was the offer of hardship and discipleship and persecution and suffering. You know, the 12 men who gathered in that boat with Jesus that day, 10 of them would die a martyr's death. 10 of them would give their lives for Christ. So the Lord emphasizes discipleship and the cost of discipleship. And Jesus' reply here in verse 20 is intended neither to encourage nor discourage the scribe. It was simply designed to help him count the cost of following him. You see, Jesus was busy traveling from one place to another. He was an itinerant preacher. He was always on the move. Sometimes he'd be staying in someone or other's house. Another night perhaps he spent under the stars praying to his father. But he had no regular home. Although he lived in Capernaum, and we call it the town of Jesus, the hometown of Jesus, he likely lived with Peter and lived in Peter's home. So what he was saying to this fellow is this, look, there are no perks for you, this side of glory, in following me. You see, it costs to follow Christ. And I want you to get that tonight. And anybody who comes making an inquiry about becoming a Christian should be told in no uncertain terms that there is a cost to becoming a Christian. You see, we want to make it easy, don't we? I mean, we want to kind of pad the way a little bit. We want to make coming to Christ the most simple little transaction imaginable. Some years ago in Leadership Magazine, they did a little, uh, a little uh, satirical advert uh, advertising the light church. And the advert said, said something like this, the light church where you have 24% fewer commitments. It's the home of the 7.5% tithe. 15 minute sermons. 45 minute worship services. I love this one. We only have eight commandments, your choice. <laughs> 
We just use three spiritual laws and have, and I like this one also, an 800-year millennium. Everything you've wanted in a church, but less. And that about sums up where the church is today. We want it to be light. We don't want a Christianity that's going to cost us. We don't want this kind of commitment that's really going to be, put us out in some way. It's going to make life difficult in some way. But remember what the Lord said when he said that we were to enter in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And he goes on and says, but straight is the gate and narrow is the way. And he talks about that narrow way as being a, a hard way. Not an easy path. It's a difficult path. In some respects, but here's the thing we've bought in that the church today has bought into the lie, and that is a lie, of easy believism. And we've come to poor sinners and we've said to them, now listen, all you've got to do is say a prayer. A, B, C, repeat after me. And if you'll say this prayer, you'll be saved. Let me tell you something. I can go across to the gin bar across the road and find some fellow coming out a little worse for wear and say to him, listen, I'll give you 10 pounds if you'll say this prayer. He'll say the prayer and he'll go back into the gin bar completely unchanged. You see, saying a prayer never got anybody into heaven. Never. You see, you and I are in this mindset, well, we've just got to make it as easy as possible. But Jesus never bought into that. Not that he was, again, discouraging people, but that he was honest with people. And he was helping them understand the cost of discipleship. Why, J.C. Ryle, Ryle the, the old bishop of Liverpool, said this, Nothing, in fact, has done more harm to Christianity than the practice of filling the ranks of Christ's army with every volunteer who is willing to make a little profession and talk fluently of his experience. It has, painfully, it has been painfully forgotten that numbers alone do not make strength and that there may be a great quantity of mere outward religion while there is very little grace. Jesus was not an easy believist. He wanted those inquiring to know what it meant to be his follower. So the first man was stumbled by expectation. He thought he could go straight into the benefits of the kingdom, that he could get the crown without bearing the cross. The second man was stumbled by procrastination. If you look in chapter 8 again in verse 21, we read another of his disciples, and the word disciples there is used very loosely, only in that he's following Jesus along with the other people in the multitude. And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me or permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, follow me and let the dead bury the dead. Now if the first man was really too quick when he promised wholehearted commitment to Christ, the second disciple, would-be disciple, was too slow. He wanted to bury his father. Now, at first glance, this seems like a perfectly reasonable request, doesn't it? I mean, if somebody came and said to me, Pastor, I can't be there, it's my dad's funeral, I would say, oh, that's completely understandable. Go to your dad's funeral, by all means. You know, you don't, be, don't come here, you should be there. 
And so that's how it seems. But the problem that we have here is that this man's father wasn't actually yet dead. You say, how do you know that? Because the custom of the day was this. When your father died, he was to be buried the same day that he died. And there was 30 days of mourning, during which time his estate had to be taken care of by his sons. So when he comes and he says, uh, he says, follow, he says, suffer me to go and bury my father, it's quite obvious within that cultural framework that his father could not have been dead. Because if he had been dead, he certainly wouldn't have been found among the multitude that was following the Lord Jesus that day. No, what this fellow was saying was this. My father's still alive, but he's getting older. And one of these days, he's going to die. And when he dies, I'm going to get his inheritance. And when I get his inheritance, then I'll come and follow you. You see what he was saying? He was saying, I want to have I want to have all the money. I want to have everything provided for. As soon as I'm provided for, I'll follow you. As soon as I have some security financially, I'll follow you. As soon as I know that my needs are going to be met, well then I will follow you. Friends, this is never the way this thing works. You see, here's the deal. You gamble with eternity when you put the Lord Jesus on hold. He's calling you to follow him as a matter of urgency. To follow him today. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Wherefore as the Holy Ghost saith. Today if you will hear his voice. Harden not your hearts. So what this man was guilty of really. Was allowing the world and the things of the world. To cry out the things of God and the things of Christ. So that Jesus says to him. Let the dead bury the dead. He's not being callous. He's not being unkind or unfeeling. But rather he is saying, let those who are dead in their sins, those who are spiritually dead, those who are worldly minded, those whose lives are characterized with by worldliness, well let them take care of those things. Let them concern themselves with the temporal. Let them strive for the riches of this world. But you've got to come now and follow me. You need to attend to the eternal. Let me tell you something, friends. All the money in the world is not worth going to hell for. If you could have every penny that the billionaire Bill Gates has in your bank account today, it wouldn't be worth having. If you die in your sin at the end of life and go into a Christless eternity. Jesus himself taught this, for what shall it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? You think about the rich man in Luke's Gospel in chapter 16. We'll not take the time to look there tonight, but if you were to look there and read of the rich man in Luke 16, how he dies in his sin, and he's buried, and he goes to hell, and he, and he lifts his eyes in torment, and he implores Abraham to come to his rescue, to help him. And what does he cry out for? He's not crying out now for the finest wines that the Israeli vineyards had to offer. He's not crying out now for, uh, for Michelin-graded meals. He's not crying out for the best seats in the best restaurants. He simply cries out for a droplet of water. Just a little droplet to somewhat quench his perishing soul. 
You know, this second man, he didn't have his priorities right. That was his problem. He was holding out for time when he indeed should have been taking care of eternity. The first man was stumbled by expectation. The second man was stumbled by procrastination. The third man was stumbled by dedication. Look in Luke chapter 9 for a moment. Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, and verse 61. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 61. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow, and having look, and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, if you begin there in verse 57 and work your way down, you'll see that this is the same story. In verse 57, you have a man who says, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Jesus says, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but I have nowhere to lay my head. The next man says, Lord, suffer me to go and bury my father. So there's this third man that Matthew doesn't mention. Why doesn't Matthew mention him? Because each man is giving his account of what he saw and heard. I'm guessing that Matthew... Matthew, once he heard the second fellow, thought, I've got things to do. He didn't hear the third fellow. But Luke records the third fellow. And so Peter heard the third fellow. Because remember, Luke is really Peter's gospel. Okay, So here is a man who has stumbled by the call for dedication. Notice in his answer the word first. He says, let me first go and bid them farewell. There was his priority. What he was saying was, well, Lord, I'll follow you, but I have a condition. I have to first go and bid my loved ones farewell. And when you say, I must do this first, what you're really saying is that God in Christ comes second. And God is a jealous God. He will never settle for second place. Never. And it seems that really in some ways the third case is not dissimilar from the second case. Except in this instance the man wants to go and say goodbyes to his loved ones. Now there's nothing wrong with that per se. You think about it, when Elisha was called to ministry, uh, he went and said goodbye to his family with Elijah's blessing, and then he followed the other prophet and ultimately succeeded him. So perhaps, you know, this man thought, well, if the, you know, the Lord would let Elijah, excuse me, Elisha uh, say goodbye to his parents and his family, I can say goodbye to my parents and my family. Uh, but and Jesus says, no, wait a minute. He says, you're not going to do this. He says, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Yeah, we've got to ask ourselves, was Jesus less merciful than Elijah? You know, you think about it, goodbye is only going to take a few moments. You know, if I was picking someone up in the car and they said, give me a second, I want to go and kiss my wife goodbye. And I said, no, I'm leaving right now. You think to yourself, that's unreasonable. Perhaps this man thought this was unreasonable. And yet when you think about it, 
The mission of Jesus was far more important than the mission of Elijah. And yet, even in this concession, the Lord would not allow, or sorry, the Lord would not allow this, the concession in this instance. Why? Uh, you, know, you know, one of the things I think here is that, is that Jesus wants us to understand that he must be the priority. When you come to Christ, he must be the priority. He has to be the most important thing. Christ is not just an important thing in our lives. He's not just an important presence in our lives. He's the important presence in our lives. Christ must come first. And when I come to Christ, I must come to Christ understanding that he is desirous to be the hub of my life. He wants to be the center of my life. Everything else should revolve around him and his will for my life. In other words, my career comes second. If there's a choice between the things of God and the things of my career, listen, the things of God must come out on top. If there's a conflict of interest between what I do for a living and what God wants me to do, then I should do what God wants me to do and not what I do for a living. My time is no longer my own. You see, my time now belongs to Christ. My life is offered to him. My marriage belongs to him. You know, I love my wife, but my wife doesn't take the place of the Lord Jesus. He has to have first place. And my family life must also be centered around following him. Matthew chapter 10, if you will. And let's go back, look there, and see the demands of the Lord in this area in verse 34. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34. The Lord says, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I come not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. Everything must be yielded to Christ. Everything is yielded to his purpose. As you know, he is and I are soon going to move and we're going to uh, go and pursue what we believe is the will of God for our lives. And uh, in doing that, we're leaving behind here in England our children and our grandchildren. You, some people say to me, we, I couldn't do that. Well, I, I hate to tell you this. But if God's will is impressed upon you to do something and there's a conflict between your emotions and your love for your children and grandchildren and your love for the Lord Jesus, you better put the love of the Lord Jesus first. Don't get me wrong, we'll be sorry to leave our children behind and sorry to leave our grandchildren behind. But we must do what the Lord calls us to do. And you must do what the Lord calls you to do. Everything must be yielded to Jesus Christ and his purpose. It's all or nothing. That's what he's saying. Now that is 
Not to say that there isn't time for home or family or recreation or job or these other things. Of course there is. But all of it is controlled by our love for the Lord Jesus, our commitment to him. He's the priority. And I'm sorry to say there are some of you sitting here and you're not ready for that kind of commitment. Uh, but then, secondly, I think Jesus didn't allow this because he saw that when this man went back to his home, he was likely going to be influenced by his friends and by his family, by their emotional appeals, and not follow him. Can I say this to you if you're a Christian? You should never consult earthly friends about heavenly matters. Never ask them. They'll always give you the wrong answer. They'll always be looking out for things from a temporal, worldly point of view. That's their mindset. That's their nature. It's not that they're, as we might say, bad people. Of course, they're sinners the same as we are. But it's not that they want what's worse for you, but it's just they have a different purpose in life. And so they will advise you according to that purpose. You shouldn't allow ungodly people or worldly people to give you counsel as to whether or not you should be a Christian or not. You know, some people make that mistake. They think about becoming a Christian. And they say, well, I'll go and ask my father, or I'll ask my mother, or I'll ask my best friend, or I'll ask my work colleague. Let me tell you something. Those people are never going to say to you, it would be a good idea if you became a Christian. Never going to say it. You know, when I was under conviction as a young man, I did just that. I, I asked my unsaved friends that I worked with and worked alongside, you know, I began to talk to them about spiritual things and asked them what they thought about born-again Christians and the Bible. And my goodness, not one of them had a positive thing to say. You see, God and his word has to be obeyed above man. And those who hear the invitation of Jesus Christ must resolve at once to seek his salvation and to give themselves to his service. You see, this fellow's problem was that he was committing all right. He was really wanting to go and be with the Lord, but he was doing it with a measure of reserve. He was holding back a little bit. When he said, I want to go and say goodbye to my loved ones, what he was really was saying was, I can't really part with them. I can't really break that tie. I can't really break that bond. You know, I, I like to think of him uh, as a hokey-cokey Christian. Now, you know, there are people who are hokey-cokey Christians, so to speak. Now, some of you are too young to have done the hokey-cokey. <laughs> but if you've never done the hokey-cokey, you have never lived. <laughs> you know what it is. The song goes, put your left leg in. Left leg out, in, out, in, out, shake it all about. You do the hokey-cokey and you turn around. That's what it's all about. I know you're looking at some of the young people looking at me like, we have no idea what you, is our past, what is wrong with that man? But it was a party dance, wasn't it? It's a party dance, a fun dance. When we were younger. And you did just that. You put your left leg in. You put your left leg out. In, out, in, out. You shake it all about. You do the hokey-cokey. You turn around. Well, that's where this fellow was. He was in, but he was out. He wanted to follow Jesus, but he didn't want to follow Jesus. He wanted to leave home, but he didn't want to leave home. He was in. He was out, but he was turning all about. And the Lord says, you can't come. 
You're not getting in the boat with me. You're not joining me and my disciples as we cross to the other side. You see, here's the deal. Anyone who puts their hand to the plow and looks back, well, they're simply not worthy of the kingdom of heaven. They're not worthy of the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus knew where his heart was. And the idea where you put your hand to the plow, well, it's a proverbial expression of old to signify your commitment and an undertaking to any kind of business. To put your hand to the plow was to say, well, this is what I'm going to do. And if you know anything about plowing, well, the one thing you must do when you're plowing is you must look straight ahead. You know, if you've ever sailed a narrow boat, you'll know that it's the same principle. If you've gone down the canals, you, whoever's on the back there of the boat and is steering the boat has to look ahead. He can't afford to look around. He can't afford to look back. Because if you look around or you look back, you're going to be into the sides of the canal or into somebody else's boat. And it's the same with plowing. You must look onward, forward. You don't think about what you're leaving behind. You don't look over your shoulder. You don't regret what's been done back here. And here's the, he's rather like Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife? The Bible says, what was her problem? She came out of the city of Sodom and the Bible says that she looked back. In other words, she looked back with a long, lingering look. She missed that city. She missed the party. She missed the people. She missed all of the things that Sodom could afford. Her heart longed for those things and God destroyed her he destroyed her here's the thing when you commit to Christ you commit to Christ you look forward and not, rip and not back there must be no regret in your decision that's why you've got to weigh it up that's why you've got to know the cost. And, and, and with Jesus again, it's all or nothing. No half measures, no reserves, no regrets. You know, during the uh, Spanish colonization of the Americas, the Spanish uh, conquistador Hernan Cortes landed on the coast of Mexico. He had a small army of just 700 men. And he knew that he had to get those men inland to conquer that region of the world. But he also knew that he would be facing stiff opposition. And he feared that his men might indeed turn back and swim back to the 11 ships that were just laid off the shore of Mexico. So you know what he did? He ordered that all 11 ships be burned. And his men stood on the beach and watched their ticket back home sinking to the bottom of the sea. Those men knew then there was only one way they could go, and that way was forward into the Mexican interior. Friends, so it is with Jesus. When you come to Jesus, you burn your bridges. When you come to Jesus, you turn from sin. When you come to Jesus, you commit your whole heart and soul to him. When you come to Jesus, you surrender your all to him. You do not come to Jesus piecemeal. You don't come to Jesus a little here and a little there. You don't say, well, I'll take the easy route, because it's never an easy route. It's a narrow gate. It's a narrow way. And when a man or woman comes to Christ, well, you must repent Turn from your sin, burn those bridges, and commit 
to Christ. That's the idea. And there's no turning back. Do you remember the chorus we would sing on occasion? I have decided, what do we sing? To follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Friends, that's the truth. And anything less is something other than gospel salvation. May God bless these thoughts to our hearts tonight. Let's pray, shall we?